Tonight's Bible reading is from Luke, chapter 24, beginning at verse 36 and finishing at verse 53. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and will rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in, the, um, in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with a power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Amen. Um, So last uh, Sunday night, we saw the three ways in which the disciples of Jesus can best walk with him. As in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, but the first couple chose not to walk with God, but walk away from him. And now Christ the new Adam walks with a second couple and the curse of that first broken relationship is restored by his death and resurrection. And his overjoyed disciples discover three things. They discover just what it is to walk with Jesus as they, as they listen to him explain the scriptures, as they enjoy talking with him, and, and, and we would use the word prayer, and as they enjoy fellowship with him through the communal experience of sharing a meal, uh, breaking bread together. And those are the ways in which we, too, as disciples of Jesus, can walk with him. And now that Cleopas and his companion return to Jerusalem, they find the 11 remaining disciples talking together, and they uh, talk about everything that has happened on the way. And then something else happens that causes them to be startled and frightened. But before that, let's just pray together. 
Gracious Lord, thank you for these incredible, fresh, honest, and stark eyewitness accounts of the one who alone offers repentance and forgiveness of sins to all peoples. As we read this orderly account written by Luke, may we please also, along with these early disciples of Jesus, know the certainty of the things we are being taught. For his glory. Amen. I just love the way that Cleopas and his companion friend find the 11 disciples assembled together, presumably back in the upper room where they had been, and saying, do you see in verse 30, 34, it is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. And uh, how are they able to authenticate this? Uh, well, it's through their testimony. And then verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. Jesus showed up. And verse 37 tells us they were startled and frightened. Um, again, isn't this just so refreshingly honest? I mean to say, if somebody was deciding to sit down to write an orderly account of the resurrection, this wouldn't be the way you would do it, would, would it? Um, the truthfulness is just so ragged, so edgy. It's both weird and wonderful. Uh, Simon Peter had, as you know, seen for himself the strips of linen lying by themselves in Jesus' tomb. And the women had reported what the apostles had said about Jesus coming back from the dead. And now this couple from Emmaus burst in on them and gave an account of their own experience of meeting the resurrected Lord. And head knowledge and heart knowledge is transformed when suddenly Jesus appears. Peace be with you, he says. And they thought they had just seen a ghost. Uh, have you seen a ghost? Anybody seen a ghost? A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. How do I know that? Not because I've watched Harry Potter movies, but that's what Jesus says in verse 39. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones. But the resurrected Christ, Jesus does. Mind you, in spite of having both flesh and bones, he seems also to have the ability to walk through stone walls. And look at the description, verse 39. That people could see him, yes. Uh, they could see his hands and his feet. We've just been singing about that. The hands that flung stars into space uh, pierced. Presumably that meant he still had the scars from those nails visible which had pierced his body on the cross. And he had the ability to eat. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul, speaking about discipleship, says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Christ's resurrection body that we read about here is like a visual aid 
to those who by faith have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. This is a prototype. One day we too will have bodies like his. When we die, Christian people won't be like ghosts. We won't be floating around somehow as disembodied souls. The scriptures know no such thing. We will have some elements about us that look the same as we do now. We'll be able to taste, we'll be able to see, we'll be able to touch, we'll be able to smell, and we'll be able to hear. But we'll also have new capacities, such as the ability to be in different places, without being confined by space or time. And is that not all rather wonderful? They say that everybody has a dominant sense. Some people just love to listen to words and to sounds. And the intricacy of language or the twitter of birds singing early in the morning, uh, that's a, a great delight. Well, in the new creation restored by Christ the second Adam, our sense of hearing will be even more acute than it is right now. Some people have a very great sense of smell. Um, It's funny, with children, you can discern even quite early on what their dominant sense is. I remember our Robert, um, when he used to pick up a book, what was the first thing he did? He opened the pages and smelt it. We wanted him to read it, but he smelt it. Um, and, and some people just love smells. You know, the, the, the sizzling of bacon in the pan or freshly mown hay. Well, in Paradise Restored, we'll have an even deeper appreciation of fantastic fragrances and smells. And other people just love food. Well, Master Chef or Michelin Star, eat your heart out. Revelation 19 tells us that foodies will enjoy a banquet, banquets in heaven, what you've never had in your life before. If the wine ran out at the wedding in Cana, it won't run dry in the marriage feast in heaven. If it's broiled fish in the menu here, in verse 42 there'll be an even greater barbecue in paradise. But even as Jesus was able to enjoy this grilled fish in the presence of his disciples, so in the new heaven and the new earth, the resurrected body, those who are united with Christ will be able to enjoy eating except more than we do at the minute. Because that's life, life in all its fullness, as Jesus puts it. Life as it was intended to be. Life in all its beauty and joy, but with none of its sorrow and pain. So here we see in Christ's resurrected body a kind of pledge. It's a visual aid for those who trust in him of what the new creation, the recreated body will look like. And that's hugely encouraging, is it not? 
And that's why, incidentally, Christian people don't have to bother to buy books entitled 100 Places That You Have to See Before You Die. Because Christian people will have all the time in the world, if we can use that phrase, to explore all those places and a million more at leisure forever. And that's why Christian people don't have to experience new experiences as Drew was talking about this morning or indeed feel pangs of jealousy as they watch television programs visiting the most exotic hotels on the planet because those who are united with the creator and recreator of the universe will in paradise be able to visit locations and experience new experiences far more incredible than the ones we can presently never even hope of staying at or affording. So no wonder then Jesus said to his disciples, peace. Because that word in the Hebrew is shalom, which means wholeness, completeness, total and utter well-being. Well, we're told in verse 41 that the disciples did not, still did not believe because of joy and amazement at encountering the risen Lord. Um, who can begin to anticipate what 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 talks about when it says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So here in this post-resurrection visitation, the Lord Jesus gives all believers everywhere a glimpse, a little insight into paradise regained, a world without suffering and sin and death and sorrow, life in all its completeness, and it's totally and utterly beautiful. Now, if we, along with the disciples, have been given this little glimpse into glory, into the eternal dimension, that's worth sharing, verse 48, isn't it? You are my witnesses, says Jesus to his beloved disciples. You are these privileged people who have been given an insight into what heaven will be like. You have the absolutely wonderful privilege of being able to share with all nations, people of every country, uh, that this world in all its brokenness and uh, fraction, fra fraction um, all its brokenness and wa wars and rumors of wars is not all that there's going to be. The best is genuinely still to come. Well, that's to jump on just a little bit quickly because here we're reminded by Jesus himself first what it is that we've got to share. We see that in verses 45 and 46. Using the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, Jesus opened their minds concerning his sufferings and death and resurrection. Wasn't it interesting to see from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus this morning in Luke 16, how the rich men's brothers also had Moses and the prophets. And Jesus says that suffice for leading to repentance and forgiveness of sins. 
And the disciples of Jesus are entrusted with this incredible responsibility to share with our world specifically about Christ's cross, resurrection, forgiveness of sins that are available through him. Now, I suppose in one sense we might say that's a very specific, even narrow message, the cross and the resurrection. But in another sense, it's an astonishingly wide and broad message because that message about Jesus' sufferings, his death and his resurrection is not confined to one or two specific hand-picked proof texts or what we might call purple passages, but the message of the gospel is uh, everything that is to be found in every single part of the Bible. It's all about Jesus. And verse 44 refers to the three major subdivisions of what we know as the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. So the gospel then that we are privileged to be able to share is no small, no narrow message, but rather encapsulates the whole of Scripture from beginning to end. Uh, Andrew and I just last Sunday uh, were talking about um, the garden tomb in Jerusalem, and one of the guides there was a Hebrew believer, that is, a Jew who believes in Jesus as Messiah. And it was his specific responsibility to explain to the groups who came to the garden tomb the cross and the resurrection entirely from the scriptures of the Old Testament. And that's why we here don't hesitate to to preach from passages from the Old Testament. And some churches and some Christians are afraid of the Old Testament and don't know what to do with it or else treat it as a book of outdated rules and regulations. That's certainly how the secular press regards the Old Testament as a primitive text for old-fashioned bigots. Um, But for those, verse 45, whose minds have been opened by Jesus to see Jesus on every page in every story, there is an endless supply of material to share with people from all backgrounds and all cultures and all nations concerning Christ. Jesus then in verse 45 did for the 11 disciples what he had done earlier on for Cleopas and his companion as they walked together on the road to Emmaus. He explained everything in all the scriptures concerning himself. And that must have been a really wonderful experience. Every Sunday night, as you know, I try to give away a book. And this evening, you probably thought I'd forgotten about that, but I haven't because the book I'm making available tonight is this. It's called The Unfolding Mystery, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament by Edmund Clowney. Where where does the story of Jesus begin? In the stable at Bethlehem? In the heart of God from all eternity, first made evident in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. As another book says, he's on every page and every story speaks his name. So who would like to have this book tonight? (laughs) All right. (laughs) Jenny, why did you have to sit in the back row? Maybe I'll get a couple of other copies. There you go. And you know the uh, format? 
you enjoy the book, and then once you've read it, you pass it on to somebody else, and hopefully then that way the story is shared. And so then Jesus explains to his disciples how he was absolutely central to the purposes of God. Not only as the rightful messianic king in the line of David, but again as we've been singing tonight as the suffering servant who would be wounded for our transgressions and raised for our justification. He explained to these overjoyed and amazed disciples how he was not only the atoning sacrifice, but also the priest who offers the sacrifice. Not only the obedient son who discharged the mission which his father assigned to him, but he was also the eternal word made flesh who disclosed the father perfectly to a generation of rebellious image bearers. And so much more. And Jesus also showed to these excited, startled, frightened, joyful, and amazed disciples that not only had God fulfilled his purposes through the law and the prophets and the Psalms, but he had chosen to use the very things that appeared to be the very worst possible tragedy in order to make, the, make it the very means by which he might save uh, people's life. He explained how the very things that seemed to ruin everything, in fact, turned out to be the very means by which joy is enhanced. I was thinking about this motif that that happens in different parts of the scriptures uh, and also from personal experience. And the story, I think, most forcefully that uh, struck in my mind was Moses and the basket. Do you remember when Moses' mother could no longer hide him from the Egyptians' death threats. She gave him up as an infant. She lost him, as it were, by making for him a little wicker basket, hiding him among the bulrushes. And who finds him but an Egyptian? An Egyptian princess, the very daughter of the Pharaoh who had sent out this edict to kill all the Egyptian boys. And she picks him up and decides to adopt him. Who could invent that story? But you see, there's more. Pharaoh's daughter then invites a Hebrew woman to look after the baby boy until he's old enough to live in the palace. And who does she choose but none other except Moses' mother and actually pays her in order to raise her own youngster. I mean, this is just incredible. This is the sort of things that God does. He he takes the worst possible scenario and uses that to fulfill his purposes of good and for glory. And that's what Jesus is able to explain to the disciples, that, that wicked people thought that as he hung on the cross, that was the end. Well, it was the end, but it wasn't the end of him. It was the end of sin and suffering and death and hell. God was able to use the very things that seemed to be the worst possible things for his glory, for his bringing of joy and hands to God's people so that God's purposes are perfect, perfectly fulfilled. Now, I can't explain that, but then I don't have to. Um, but that's the sort of story we see 
uh, fulfilled here in the cross and the resurrection. The worst possible event becomes, in fact, the very best means possible by which shalom, wholeness, completeness, salvation comes. So that what we as witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit on high, verse 49, are entrusted by Jesus to proclaim we are able to share. So two things tonight. Jesus' resurrected body is a visual aid, a prototype to those who are united with Christ as what our resurrected body, our resurrected life will look like. And Jesus explained of his death and resurrection from the scriptures uh, what has become a visual aid, a prototype uh, to those who are united with Christ, how we may in fact also bear witness to him. We have a story to share with a gospel to proclaim. Well, I wonder how that might impact our life, our experience this coming week. As in the company of Jesus, we walk with him as we share the good news of repentance and forgiveness of sins, his resurrection with life, with people we meet from all nations. Oh, gracious Lord, it's just a wonderful thing um, to discover things we would never find any other place. We thank you for your word and we thank you that every page points to the Lord Jesus and every page finds fulfillment in him. How we bless you. How we thank you. How we thank you that Jesus is the word made flesh who dwelt among us, full of grace, full of truth. Help us live in the light of his grace and his truth this coming week. That is our prayer. So that hearts and minds, people, be turned to our Savior. And all our prayers we offer in his name. Amen.